0: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFaul from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're continuing our occasional series on Rwanda. So far, we've talked with Michael Barnett and Sarah Brown, while future interviews will feature Tim Longman, Aaron Jesse, and John Clark. Today, we turn again to the international community's response to the genocide with Herman Salton. Author of the terrific new book, Dangerous Diplomacy Bureaucracy, Power Politics, and the Role of the UN Secretariat in Rwanda. Herman is Associate Professor of International Relations at the Asian University for Women in Bangladesh. And the book he's written aims to fill a gap in our knowledge by looking at the UN Secretariat as an actor uh, in its own right during the um, genocide in Rwanda. It's a fascinating approach, one that sheds much light on why the international community responded the way it did. I'm eager to talk about it. So with that, Herman, welcome to the show. And thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Thanks, uh, Kelly. Thanks for having me.
0: So you've got a really remarkable array of experiences. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you'd tell uh, the audience just a little bit about yourself and how you ended up to be a professor of international relations.
1: Ah, that's a very interesting question. I wish I, I knew how to answer it. Uh, part of it is uh, absolute sheer chance. Uh, it was not planned to be. It was not meant to be, perhaps I should say. Uh, but it, it happened. Um, I will just say that I'm an international lawyer by training. So I did my law school in Italy, um, in the very north of Italy, which explains the funny accent, um, which I hope you can understand. Uh, but I actually hated uh, my law school, and I moved as far away as I could um, to New Zealand as it happens. And I did my PhD in international law in New Zealand, only to discover that what I was really interested in Uh, was not provided in terms of answers by the law. And uh, I did my PhD thesis on the Islamic headscarf controversy in France. And by the end of that PhD, I realized there was very little about the law and everything was about the politics. And so I then decided to uh, move to Oxford and I did my master's in international relations there uh, before moving on to a second PhD in international relations. So perhaps the first uh, interesting thing is that I'm an international lawyer by training, but I'm a convert to international relations. Uh, And perhaps we can talk about the difference uh, between the two. Uh, But it's important for the book because um, I think you can see a bit of a forensic approach to the book. Um, But at the same time, there's a lot of politics behind, which there should be, because the Rwandan genocide was largely about politics. So that's my background in terms of education, in terms of professional experience. I've done a lot of uh, practitioner's work, as we call it. I was an officer of all places in Iceland at the Human Rights Center uh, for a couple of years there. And uh, I was also in New York, and we can talk about that uh, at the Under Secretary General's Office for Political Affairs. And then it struck me that actually, the practitioner's life was not really for me. And that's where I decided to move into academia. Um, And I was very happy and I've been very happy ever since. So the reason why I'm an associate professor, you have to ask to my uh, supervisors, but um, from my point of view, it's it's a very rewarding experience. I'm based in Bangladesh. The institution itself is American. Uh, based in uh, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. But we have a campus in Bangladesh with students from 16 different countries. And perhaps we can talk about the joys of teaching a uh, very, very international uh, student body. But that's basically, in short, uh, my experience.
0: So was your interest, you, you mentioned you worked for the UN. Is Is the interest in the UN an academic one, or did it stem from your experience working with the organization?
1: Uh, It's really both. Um, I was only there for a short time um, in DPA, or the Department of Political Affairs, as we call it, Um, and I was perhaps there long enough to understand some of the dynamics that went on, but also not long enough to become a part of the system. And uh, perhaps we can talk about that uh, in terms of bureaucratic culture and all of that. But in terms of my interest in the UN, it started as, uh, I would say, a normative interest. I'm a very strong supporter, believe it or not. Perhaps after you read the book, you might wonder whether that's really the case. But I am a very strong supporter of the UN. I have, in fact, a flag in my office Um, and I teach courses on the UN. uh, And really, my desire to work for the organization stemmed from this very strong attachment to the ideals and to the mission of the UN. Um, Then I got there, and um, for different reasons, I decided that there was also an academic side to it, and I got interested in international relations at about the same time. And so the power political side uh, became very important to me and that's why I then went as an area of specialization into UN studies. So I would say it's both is a normative I would say just to be perhaps a disclaimer that I'm a multilateralist which is uh, perhaps an insult nowadays but I am a multilateralist so I'm happy to confess uh, immediately to my sins. Um but that tells you my commitment to the values of the UN, um, but there's also then a side of power politics and uh, fascination with the political process. And when I was working there, also a fascination with the bureaucratic process, which I would have never imagined could be fascinating, but as it happens, I found it fascinating.
0: And, and we should say here, although it's probably not likely to come up in this conversation um, as you told me beforehand, um, there is a confidentiality issue that revolves around your position at the UN, uh, which I assume will limit what you can say
1: about the UN during the time that you were here. You were there. Yes, it, it does uh, because of confidentiality agreements. But happily, I also have access to a, to a different archive, um, so I'm I'm free to talk about that archive, but not about my own experience at the UN. That's just the disclaimer. So why this book? So the book started really um, for, I would say there are two reasons why I decided to write it. I have to tell you, this was, was likely to be the most difficult book I've, I will ever write for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the subject, there's nothing worse than talking about Rwanda, the UN. Um, it's just a very, very sensitive topic for good reasons, um, and we can get into some of those good reasons um, but there, there was a sense when I was working at the UN that I was privy to information uh, that I found very disturbing in terms of the way the bureaucracy worked on the one hand, but also relating to the way that states influenced the bureaucracy on the other hand. Uh, neither of those things is really well known outside of the UN, perhaps even within the UN to some extent, and I, I found it very very interesting that such a high-profile organization, arguably the most high-profile organization that we have, in my view, the most important organization that we have at the international level, there is very, actually, very little, both at the bureaucratic level and in terms of the political influence that states uh, try to um, exert on the UN bureaucracy. This is actually not the reasons why I've written the book, but it kind of. Um, It was a seed that really emerged when I was given access to the archive that we can talk about later on. In terms of the primary motivation for the book was to really test um, what I was seeing at the United Nations and what I later found out to be uh, in the archive. And the first case study was actually Rwanda for reasons that are perhaps boring, um, and we can get to that as well, but they are bureaucratic in nature. Uh, in the summer of 1993, which is when the Rwanda operation was planned, there was a bureaucratic reorganization of the UN by the then-Secretary-General Butos Ghali, and Rwanda was actually one of the first missions to experience the effects of that reorganization. And so to me, Rwanda was important from a chronological point of view for that reason and also because um, it was a worst-case scenario. And so to some extent, there was also a sense of looking at probably the most tragic case of involvement of the United Nations in a peacekeeping operation and trying to understand whether the two, so the bureaucratic side and the failure of the operation had anything to do with each other. So
0: you, the sources you use are significantly different, or maybe I should say you have access to significantly increased number of sources that I'm used to seeing in these books. So maybe you can talk about how you did the research and what kind of sources you had available. To you.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the reasons, perhaps uh, I, I would define it both a blessing and a curse, um, both of my book not only of my book, but also of the last four years of my life um, because of the access that I was given to this private archive. I should perhaps mention at the beginning, this is not the only source, of course, I use as, a, as an academic. I'm very, very sensitive, and you will have seen it in the introduction as well, that I address the issue of bias uh, very early on. There is um, a considerable danger when you're given access to a private archive Exclusive as it happens, exclusive access. There is a considerable danger of both internal and uh, external bias. Internal, in the sense that these persons' archive, these person, in fact, who who produced the archive might have had uh, their own biases and perhaps even an agenda. Uh, external, because I also might have an agenda. So these are issues that I talk about in the book, in fact, in the introduction, and it's very important to me that the reader understands that the access I was given was largely accidental. I just happened to find myself in a a specific place at a specific time. It's nothing to do with my abilities, uh, certainly not with my detective abilities or with my connections. Um, But basically, the fact is that in in 2010, I was given access to the archive of Mara Golding, who was an undersecretary general for a number of years. In fact, he was uh, number two at the UN for 11 years. And I would say probably the most important 11 years in the history of the UN, uh, because that was from about 86 to 97. So you are going through the end of the Cold War. You're going through basically all the kind of successes and failures and uh, tragedies of um, the international community and the UN in the early 90s up to 1997 with the new Secretary General taking office. So this is an exceptionally interesting time span. Um, And... The first thing I should say about the, um, the archive is that it's both made up of diaries um, as well as documents that uh, Golding received during his 11 years of activity. Golding was an incredibly meticulous person. He was keeping uh, three diaries every single day for, throughout his uh, 40-year career. So that is uh, meeting diaries, so everybody he met, traveling diaries, the places that he uh, went to on a daily basis, and also the personal diaries. So the first uh, curse that um, I encountered was the massive amount of information um, that I found. And the second one is the fact that that kind of information blended the private and the public. Um, that's what diaries do. You, you just don't uh, keep a private and a public, private and public diaries unless you are a PR person, perhaps. But this was not a PR person, and uh, one of the first problems I, I encountered was the amount of personal detail that uh, emerged very, very quickly um, as I was going through the archive, and so that uh, was also the reason why the family asked me to. At first, actually decided to embargo the entire archive on the basis that uh, very confidential information about high-profile people was mentioned, um, and then uh, reluctantly agreed to basically take out the private from the public um, and only deal with the public uh, side. But that distinction is constantly shifting and actually quite difficult to make. So, the archive itself is huge. Uh, by the way, it will be given to the Oxford Borderlands Library, so it will, of course, be available um, to the public whenever the family decides. From my side, the sooner the better. Um, but it does contain a number of information that is confidential, and so from the private side, the family wants to make sure that reputations are not compromised and Information of a private nature is not shared. So this is the reason why the book is um, partly based on this primary um, information. This is information that nobody, including the family, had seen before, and that constitutes a large part of my sources. Is not the only part, of course. I, I ground my work in the both in the UN and in the Rwanda literature, um, and I also look at other archives the french uh, archive the belgian archive and other primary sources so but it you're absolutely right that this is the the most important one perhaps the most significant in terms of the observations but that's also why it is also the most problematic in terms of outcomes and i'm sure you will have questions about the bias side well let's start talking about the book itself and and while most of the discussion we'll have, because of the the,
0: the, the subject of this podcast, will focus on Rwanda, I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about the more institutional issues that you want to deal with. And so maybe I'll start by, by saying you, you divide your book into two parts, one of which deals with structures and one with processes. C- can you explain what you mean by these and why you thought it was important to, to divide the book in that
1: way? Yes. Um... It is, I think, very important to make this distinction because wh- one of the things that is unique of the UN is that actually the structures, and by that I really uh, mean the institutions that have been built specifically in the case of my book, the departments, the different departments that had dealt with the Rwandan crisis, were actually established at the United Nations before processes were introduced. And by processes, I really mean things like um, peacekeeping, peacebuilding, so fairly important concepts that were actually introduced after the structures that were supposed to handle those processes were created. Now, that might strike you as perhaps idiosyncratic, and because we are talking about the UN uh, not because of its own fault, but because of partly because of the state's requirements and the, the nature of this international, very unique international organization that is very idiosyncratic. Whenever you want to achieve a certain aim or a certain goal, and you set up structures to achieve that goal, the structures usually follow the goal or the process or the aim. With the United Nations, that is exactly the opposite of what happened. And the reason for that is nothing to do with the organization, or I should perhaps say with the bureaucracy itself. It is not the fault of the bureaucracy, although as we will see, the bureaucracy, I think, has its own faults, some of which are very significant. This is not one of them. The reason why processes really follow structures is because when the United Nations was created, it really was a compromise and it was set up in a way, especially as a result of the Cold War certain member states especially the soviet union actually denied any political role to the secretary general and as a result was absolutely adamantly opposed to for example institutionalizing things like peacekeeping peace building and others so that was a no go area in terms of you know clarifying these concepts and processes at the outset, and the reason for that, as always with the UN, is that Member States disagreed with that, so it was not possible to clarify those processes. At the same time, the United Nations was established in 1945, it was built, and it grew. Like all bureaucracies, even if the aim or the, the processes are unclear, that never stops bureaucracies from growing, which is exactly what happened at the United Nations. And so you have the development of different departments that are supposed to do different things that are not very clear for the reasons that I've explained. So the reason in terms of separating the book into two, the structures and the processes, it's very important that structures come first, because usually they don't, but in the case of the UN, they do. And this is part of the pathology that I'm trying to explain. So the
0: book really, if you look at it as a, from the, the historian's perspective, I'm a historian, the book in some sense starts with the ascension of Boutros Boutros-Ghali to become secretary general. So, so who was Boutros Boutros-Ghali, and, and what was his vision for the UN?
1: Interesting question. Bucis Bucis ghali was um, a very, um, how can I define it? How can I define him? He was a very, very scholarly accomplished uh, head of the United Nations. I would say probably the most scholarly accomplished, the best prepared um, head of the United Nations. We are talking about... Uh, a former professor of international law that does not in itself make somebody the best prepared secretary. I can assure you as an international lawyer, that's not the case. But he was also a member of the Egyptian government before joining the UN for a number of years. He had uh, an encyclopedic uh, phone book. He basically knew everybody around in terms of heads of states and governments because of his... Uh, close connections to President Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. And uh, he had been really very, very close to government or in government uh, for a number of decades. We are not even talking about years. He was also instrumental in the Israeli peace process. He was involved in organizing President Sadat's visit to Israel, um, He, which, by the way, created a number of issues with the Arab countries, Uh, but ingratiated him with the United States. Uh, So he was somebody that had been around for decades, always very, very close to presidents and prime ministers. He had written very prolifically about the United Nations, um, Mm. a very, very sharp intellect, somebody that could um, hold a conversation for hours on, uh, on substantive matters, for example, of international law and international relations, And so Boutros Butros Ghali is somebody that comes into the picture at a time when there is a lot of expectations for the UN. We are talking about 1992. That is immediately before January 1992. In March 1992, you have the first ever uh, Security Council meeting at the level of heads of state and government. So this is um, the end of the Cold War has come. You have a lot of expectations for, for the potential of the United Nations. You really have a Soviet Union no longer there. There is a Russia, which is very weakened. And of course, you have the United States as the only superpower. So Buterz Ghali comes into the picture with a lot of ideas uh, about the United Nations. He had considered joining the UN earlier and had actually uh, declined. Uh, he said, I was not interested in that. But 1992 is the time when things start to happen. And his vision for the UN is nothing short of, I would say, revolutionary from many points of view. He makes a number of proposals, and we can talk about the Agenda for Peace and others that are uh, very bold from a number of points of view. So, this is somebody that comes, by the way, from, yes, an Arab country, but he also saw himself as an African. He's somebody who wanted to put Africa at the center um, of the action of the United Nations, which is interesting in light of criticism that he he will receive on Rwanda. So this is somebody that comes into the picture as a doer and who has no time for compromise. This is also somebody who has, by the way, had a terrible temperament. Uh, One former official defined... Uh, to me, the senior management me- meetings as nuclear, he was prone to uh, irrational likes and dislikes. And uh, again, we can talk about that. But this is a very interesting personality. This is um, somebody that shakes up the UN, I would say, uh, from the beginning, especially the UN bureaucracy. And so this is, in short, um, I would say the picture about Butcher's Galli.
0: And you mentioned the agenda for peace. What is the role he imagines the UN will play in this new post-Cold War world?
1: The role that he imagines for the UN, the, the role that he dreams for the UN is a very active role. Um, he comes with, a, with an idea, and the idea is that um, the traditional big powers of the United Nations, especially the United States, should be limited in what they do. And here we get into a very interesting, from an international relations point of view, a very interesting um, relationship, if you want. There is this idea of having two United Nations, um, one made up of member states and the other of the Secretary General and the UN officials or the bureaucracy. And I think this is a very interesting idea. Some people say this is really not the way things are, and they might be right, because, of course, member states are the principal actors. And according to some people, especially the realists, would say that they decide everything. Uh, Secretary-General Boutros Ghali had very different ideas. He really thought the Secretary-General of the United Nations needed to have, and I quote, a political role to play. And for him, having a political role meant limiting what the member states uh, could and wanted to do. And that created a number of issues from the very beginning. You have to remember that nobody gets elected as Secretary General um, if they are revolutionaries. If they have, or they have communicated bold ideas from the beginning, they would be immediately vetoed, I think. Um and so Butus Ghali was very skillful because he in no way questioned, for example, state sovereignty. He always recognized the primacy of the member states' role in the international um in the international organization of the UN, but he also had no intention of sitting around and just doing whatever member states wanted them wanted him to do. And this created as I said, a number of issues very early on. So this is a very skillful um, person that has a vision, has a purpose. He also, by the way, has a lot of detractors, um, and I know that you interviewed some of them before me. I share some of that criticism. But when it comes to the vision for the United Nations, I think he was largely a visionary and he had a very ambitious agenda. And, of course, he was not able to implement even a fraction of that agenda, for reasons that already, I would say, uh, within one year of his um, taking office, so already by the end of ninety-two, beginning of 1993, he ran into serious issues on a number of fronts with a number of member states, and that is when the Rwanda and other peacekeeping operations ran into uh, trouble.
0: So one of the ways he tries to implement this vision is administratively. He restructures the UN bureaucracy regarding, and I'm going to use these words, um, without trying, trying to elaborate on them, although you're welcome to, if you want. Um, but he tries to, to or he does restructure the UN's bureaucracy that deals with peacekeeping and peacemaking. Um, And and much of your story is actually driven by the institutional divisions that emerge out of this. So maybe you can talk about his administrative restructuring, the creation of the department, I think I've got this right, of political affairs, and and then the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, uh, and what they were supposed to be doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just before we start, uh, just before the reader, the the listeners uh, fall asleep, I can guarantee that the UN bureaucracy is one of the most fascinating beasts to study. It is different from other bureaucracies. Um, so when you say he started to restructure the UN Secretariat, by the way, that is something that absolutely every single one of the Secretaries General did within the first year of taking office. This is something that Secretary General Gutierrez is doing at the moment and all of his predecessors. So there's absolutely nothing new there. By the way, another thing that happens um, almost all the time, is that these restructurings are uh, really asked by Washington. This is not new. It is happening nowadays with Trump. Um, and you will have noticed that Gutierrez's first visit um, was to Washington, to where he was lavishly placed by Trump uh, on a number of, of things. But this is very normal for Secretary, Gen- Secretary General to... Restructure the secretariat, um, especially as a result of demands from what is the? We have to remember the largest donor to or contributor to the United Nations budget. So, this is nothing new there. I think the point where it gets very interesting and in fact fascinating is that Ghali had a reputation for taming bureaucracies. He uh, said. As soon as he took office, I'm going to deal uh, with the UN bureaucracy in the same way that I've dealt with the Egyptian bureaucracy. Um, And uh, it was something along the lines of sudden violence. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, As soon as he took office, he uh, eliminated a number of senior management positions. But most importantly, and this is uh, again where it gets very interesting, he, his own um, interpretation or reading of the UN bureaucracy, and we can then discuss whether this is accurate, it might not be accurate, and I will let you know my views about this. His own interpretation is that there was a part of the UN bureaucracy that was not trustworthy, that he could not rely on. And that part really was the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. Uh, or DPKO, as it is also called. Uh, Butchers Ghali's views from the early earliest times are that this department is under the control of member states, so outside of his own control, which is quite interesting because, as we mentioned, the two UNs is supposed to be member states on one side and UN bureaucracy and the Secretary-General on the other side. Sec- uh, Secretary-General Butchers Ghali disagreed with this view. He looked at part of the UN bureaucracy as an enemy uh, and looked at some UN officials as effectively hostile to him and later on also bent on taking his job. And so his own approach, and again, I'm just giving you the rationale uh, rather than agreeing with it, was that this part of the UN bureaucracy had to be limited And the best thing to do, especially since you've got to restructure the secretariat anyway, was to try to limit the, quote, power of that part of the um, bureaucracy that was effectively uh, uh, troublesome. In the case, so this is important because um, Butros Ghali was, and he uh, defines himself as a politician at heart. Yes, he was an academic before. But he defines himself as a politician, not even as a diplomat. He says, I am a politician at heart, and I deal with power. And so the way that he dealt with the UN bureaucracy is uh, through an exercise of power, which is something that I think very few secretaries general did before and since. And so in the kind of grand restructuring that he proposed and then implemented, that kind of separation between... the two two major departments that were created were, on the one hand, the Department of Political Affairs, or DPA, which is also, by the way, the department I was affiliated with at the UN for a very short time, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, or DPKO, as it is also referred to. The distinction between the two is something that I cover in my book. Um, And effectively, the way that... Um, it's easier to, to explain in, in the sense of explaining to you how Buchesgali saw it. It's much difficult to actually define the separation of roles for reasons that we can come to. But Buchesgali saw this separation as in this way I am in charge of the UN bureaucracy, and uh, these two departments are supposed to do my w- what I want them to do. The Department of Political Affairs, I control directly. And is supposed to be really the peace building and peacemaking department of the UN. These are the guys and girls that basically make sure that um, where there is conflict, there can be a resolution to conflict. So we are really talking about the primary aim, not only of the Department of Political Affairs, but indeed of the United Nations as an international organization. So for him, the DPA or the Department of Political Affairs was really the jewel in his crown. It was the department that he cherished. It was the department that he controlled directly. It was the department that he used very, very skillfully for a number of reasons, including in Rwanda. And it was the department that he trusted. As opposed to this, there was the Department of Peacekeeping Operations that, for a number of reasons, he thought was controlled by member states. One of those reasons is fairly easy to understand. The United Nations doesn't really have military capacity. It has to rely on member states, and the Department of Peacekeeping Operations was meant to deal with um, peace missions on the ground. So, Once there is a conflict and the Department of Political Affairs find a solution to that conflict, then the Department of Peacekeeping Operations kicks in and really uh, makes sure that the peace that the Department of Political Affairs has achieved is sustained. So this is really the strategy and the vision. You have a conflict, the Department of Political Affairs comes in and really facilitates a peace agreement, And after a peace agreement is achieved, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations kicks in and makes sure that that peace agreement is sustained. But what looks like a simple bureaucratic organization has to be understood in the context of Butuzgali really not trusting the Peacekeeping Operations Department and indeed the leadership of the Peacekeeping Operations Department. And the way that he saw it, he saw really um, the peacekeeping operations department was defined to me by a UN official as the, this is a terribly sexist, by the way, expression, which I hate, uh, especially as somebody who, who works at a women's only university, I would probably be fired as a result of this, but this is, was defined to me as the, the, the blue-eyed boy of member states. The DPKO is the department where the action is, is the department in which states are very willing to invest because they see what they get back. The Department of Political Affairs, being close to the Secretary General, is seen as murky, is seen as, is not clear what it does to anybody, by the way, including when I was in the United Nations, within the United Nations, there was a lot of confusion about this department, and so states prefer to invest on the peacekeeping operations department. Partly as a result of that, Butuzgali really, really did not trust that department, which that led then then led to a number of problems on on the ground. So let's look at
0: this through the lens of UNAMIR. UNAMIR, the United Nations Assistance Mission uh, in Rwanda, was is set up. In some ways, for failure before it began, at least this is what you suggest. So, so maybe you could say something about the decision to create Unamir and and the way Unamir emerged in practice.
1: Yes, Unamir was, and this has been, by the way, explained by others much more successfully and effectively than I than I can do ever do. But basically, Unamir was created. Um, we are talking about the summer of 1993, and the, the timing is very important here because the restructuring of the UN Secretariat was also going on at this exact time. UNEMIR was created as a result of changes on the ground and uh, political power political changes in Kigali, and also uh, as a result of the international community getting tougher with um, the Rwandans. Basically, in the field, what you had was a situation where the uh, President Rimana, who was the president of Rwanda at that time, a member and um, a prominent Hutu, uh, was really coming under severe pressure from the international community to sign a peace agreement with the RPF, or the Rwandan Patriotic Front, and that is a Tutsi-led, largely Tutsi-led movement um, led by Paul Kagame, who is the current president of Rwanda. Now, the situation is very complicated, but the reason why UNEMO was set up was really the fact that there was a balance between these two uh, competing forces on the ground. At one point, a peace agreement was negotiated. By the way, it was negotiated through the Department of Political Affairs. And so what happened in the summer of 1993 is that partly as a result of the military situation in Rwanda and partly also... As a result of the fact that France uh, decided to uh, no longer support militarily, at least not as forcefully as they had done before, the Hutus, um, basically President Javier felt that he had no choice but to sign this peace agreement. So the UNAMIR as a mission was set up um, in a fairly, I would say, uh, impromptu way. It was very rushed from the beginning, Um, again, we go back to a situation where structures are put in place, for example, without really having clarity over mandates, which is quite important if you are setting up a peacekeeping operation that you might want actually to know exactly what the mandate and what the aim of the mission is. That is not what happened in Rwanda. And by the way, this is not the exception, but it's the rule certainly in the 90s. So you have a mission that is set up, Ostensibly, uh, an easy operation, uh, which is, was meant really to just be there on the ground to make sure that the two parties would implement the peace agreement. And um, what came apparent very, very uh, quickly was that the two parties were not ready to actually carry out the peace agreement. Um, Particularly within the two parties, you had a lot of extremists that were very, very viciously opposed to the peace agreement. We can come later to um, a point that I think is very important, which is the political assessment or the assessment of the political situation of Rwanda, which was absolutely disastrous um, for the United Nations. And this is, by the way, partly a responsibility of the Department of Political Affairs and Ghali himself. There was very little understanding of what was going on in Rwanda. Um, the situation, as was presented to Dalea, was Dalea was the Um, force commander that was appointed to head the military side of Unamir. The situation as presented to him was fairly simple. Dallaire himself was a military person. He was not used to handling diplomatic negotiations or political compromises, and that was part of the problem as well, that he found himself in a situation that was very different from the one that was presented to him. So Unamir was set up with the, um, the, the mandate was really to implement the peace agreement. It was supposed to be a traditional peacekeeping operation and therefore no force involved by the United Nations. And it was supposed to be an easy operation uh, because everything was set up uh, by the peace agreement that was signed at Arusha. As it turns out, things worked very, very differently As I think I show in my book, uh, even before UNAMI was set up, there was a lot of confusion in New York. And I just have to go back to that distinction between the two departments that I mentioned. Uh, But the the critical distinction here, which you will see in UNEMIR as well, is nobody knew what the difference is between a political role in the field and a technical role. The Department of Political Affairs was supposed to deal with the, quote, political aspects of the operation. The Peacekeeping uh, Department was supposed to deal with the technical or operational side, so a bit like a Minister of Defense kind of um, division of roles. But that division never worked. It did not work in Kigali because it never worked in New York. And that's why I think that bureaucratic distinction is important because it it set up not only Rwanda but other operations to failure. When you are saying one department is in in charge of political negotiations or political aspects of a peacekeeping operation and the other department only does operational or technical um, roles, then you are setting up yourself for failure because if you can tell me what is not political in a peacekeeping operation... I would be grateful. Um the budget the budget is a political decision. Um mandates uh, of all things mandates were regarded by somebody in Kigali as a technical or operational matter not as a political matter. And the reason for the confusion is that the confusion came from New York.
0: So that's interesting because you you have A significant section where you basically outline the ways in which Romeo Dallaire and, and forgive me, I think it's Jacques Boubou, may have the first name wrong, disliked each other. Um, But your argument is that, that that is certainly a factor, but the overriding factor is the lack of clarity from New York rather than the personal disagreements and dislike they had.
1: Yeah, I think both are important, um, but perhaps as, as an institutional historian, I, I'm more drawn to the systemic factors. Perhaps also as an academic, uh, I'm more drawn to the systemic factor. There is no doubt that these two people, uh, Jean-Roger Bobo, is uh, was actually the political head of the operation or the Secretary General, Special Representative, um, in Rwanda, and on the one hand, and Romeo Dallaire on the other as the force commander. There's no doubt that they hated each other, uh, profoundly. If you have read his, um, Bubu's, uh, book, Memoirs is really a uh, personal attack on, uh, on Dallaire. Um, so there's no doubt. And of course, Dallaire is not kind, although I think m- certainly, he's certainly more elegant, uh, but he's not kinder to Boo, Boo So there's no doubt that the confrontation was there. There was personal animosity. We also have to remember that um, I was reminded of this at one point, my editor at OUP asked me, so what would you have done? And we have to remember that in any, even... I even the best kind of case scenario, when you are put in charge on an operation uh, that goes so drastically wrong, then personal relations are under considerable strain. This was not any kind of bad operation. This was probably the most disastrous, uh, the most tragic um, peacekeeping operation ever at the United Nations. So, we can safely allow for a level of personal animosity between the two people that really were in charge of the operation, and I think it's it's uh, it would have been a miracle if that had not happened so to me the personal the personal animosity is cert- was certainly there played a factor but is understandable. What I find more difficult to understand, but at the same time also I find intriguing is the fact that the separation of roles between these two Heads of the mission were not clear from New York. You have a force commander that is supposed to be in charge of operational matters, military matters, but who continuously shut shuttles between the different parties doing political work and diplomatic negotiations. And on the other hand, you have a head of mission uh, who arrives, by the way, in um, on, in the field later than the force commander Bubu was supposed to provide overall direction of the operation. He was effectively the head of the mission, but he is appointed after Dalaire, which is incredible. From the point of view of leadership, you really never, ever appoint a leader of a mission after you appoint everybody else, because it means that you are not giving that person the chance to establish their leadership. And that was a weakness that came from New York rather than from Kigali. But the other thing that I find problematic is that you have, therefore, two main people at the top of the operation. One is told you are in charge, Boo. Uh, you are in charge of the overall mission, you are dealing with political matters, diplomatic negotiations, whereas Dallaire, you are handling uh, really operational matters, military matters, and technical matters, That separation is a recipe for disaster, as it was shown to be very, very quickly, um, made even worse by the fact that the reconnaissance mission that happened before the mission had been established was conducted by uh, Dallaire. And so Dallaire, a military person who effectively had never had any experience, certainly not at this level of diplomatic negotiations, really was in charge of the operation for a good month and a half before Bubu arrived. So as as an international organization from New York, you are really doing your best to set up these two people for failure. And I say that with with sorrow because um, perhaps we can go into the reasons why this was done, Part of it was lack of financing from member states, so I'm not blaming entirely the bureaucracy for doing it. But certainly, when you are coming up with a division of roles that is so problematic, you do not expect people in the middle of killings and later genocide to be clear about what they are supposed to do. And this became fairly apparent fairly quickly.
0: So you you, you actually point out a number of ways this bureaucratic tension and and division of labor or unclarity of division of labor in New York impact things. I'll just use one as an example or one other as an example. Could you say something about what kind of information is coming back from Rwanda to UN leaders in New York? What are they hearing? Um, And, and how consistent is this or, and are people in different parts of the bureaucracy hearing the same thing?
1: So I think the biggest mistake that can be uh, made when it comes to looking at the UN bureaucracy is to regard it as a monolith. This is nothing, absolutely not a monolith. Um, The divisions, bureaucratic divisions in New York reflect power dynamics uh, among member states. And I think this is one of the most understudied aspects of the UN, and that's actually the main reason why I've I've written the book, to show that what looks like a bureaucratic, petty kind of um, office uh, or departmental rivalry actually hides a much bigger power political rivalry between different parts, either between different states, member states, or between different parts of the United Nations, and these became very, very clear in Rwanda, um, I think very, very tragically, because you are, you're asking me what kind of information went back to New York. My answer is that a lot of information, and in fact, I would say a lot of intelligence went back to New York, including in the critical months before the genocide happened. I, you have talked in, in these podcasts uh, about the genocide facts that Dallaire sent, a very famous document, probably the most infamous document ever produced by the United Nations. Um, that we are really talking about January 1919, uh, for, and uh, that's seen really as a warning by Dallaire, not that genocide would happen because Dallaire himself says, I've never seen genocide, I was myself surprised, I was warning about ethnic cleansing, etc., etc. So, but that document that was really sent in January 19, 1994 is seen as an indictment of, for example, Boucher's Gali um, and of the entire United Nations system because effectively... That document is seen as um, somehow there is the expectation that that document was sent to the United Nations by Dallaire. Yes, it was sent to the United Nations, but as always, you have to ask which part of the UN was it sent to. And the interesting point is that document was sent to the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, or DPKO. It was restricted in terms of circulation, Um, It is true that the DPKO forwarded it to a number of offices, including the Secretary General's office, and so they say, well, we shared it, so please don't blame us. Um, I have some issues with that because the Secretary General's office, and by the way, I'm not defending... Butros Ghali, as it will become very, very clear from the following thing I'm going to tell you, I'm not in any way defending Butros Ghali, but it is true that the Secretary-General's office was receiving at that very time about 1,000 messages a day about a number of situations and uh, tens of missions around the world. So you certainly don't expect the Secretary-General to pick up that specific document unless you are forwarding it specifically to the Executive Office of the Secretary-General with a note saying be careful, watch out, we have a very serious situation. We think this might degenerate into something very dangerous. That DPKO never did. They simply forwarded it to, I think, 10 or 12 different offices, and it was really not given uh, a lot of priority. But the reason why I said I'm in, I'm not in the business of defending Butchersgalli is because in December, so one month before this fax was sent by Dallaire, to the DPKO, therefore the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, you have another document, or rather piece of information, that is shared with the Secretary General directly. So with uh, Butchus Ghali, we don't know where he got this piece of information from, but he is basically told um, somebody within Habyarimana's circles are preparing ethnic cleansing against the Tutsis. And what is interesting is that Butuz Ghali received directly this piece of information, is very alarmed, shares it immediately, immediately with DPA, so with the Department of Political Affairs. And in fact, Butuz Ghali sends immediately his DPA officer to Kigali to warn Habyarimana that the UN knew what he was up to and that he would not have accepted it. So we have a situation where two very important pieces of information enter the UN um, system. One in January that is entered by the layer and is sent to DPKO, but the other is a month before and that's sent directly to the Secretary General's office and is shared with DPA. What I find absolutely extraordinary, perhaps not so in light of the bureaucratic side, is that these two departments never shared that information with each other. So here we go, we have the two departments that are supposed to handle, on the one hand, political affairs, on the other hand, peacekeeping operations, that somehow never share those two pieces of information that really warn about the same thing. It's not about genocide, this is not, neither of those warnings was about genocide, it was about ethnic cleansing against the Tutsis. Now, you might conclude that's very different. Other people think that that that's serious enough to take action, I certainly share that view. But what is extraordinary is that there were two pieces of information sent to two different departments and these two departments did not share it with each other. And I I find that scary. I find it disturbing. Um, I do not think, by the way, if we dig into it, I do not think that these two departments are ultimately responsible for not sharing it because I think larger forces, power political forces were at play. But I think it's very disturbing that two different parts of the UN bureaucracy would not share effectively what was the same piece of information.
0: And as I understand your book, this isn't just a one time thing. That this is a, the, the bureaucratic culture that emerged led to this, the, the fact that different people were hearing different things consistently over months.
1: Yeah. Um, except that, you know, I would be very careful. This is not only about bureaucratic uh, infighting. You have bureaucratic infighting is everywhere. You know, the mayor of New York, or any even the smallest town, will have departments within his or her office that fight each other. This is just the nature of—I I would say—human nature. I'm sure in your in, in your university you don't have these problems. In my university, even we have this problem. That's a very small institution. Somehow there is it. Yes, <laughs> you also have some disclaimers, perhaps, but somehow there is this, this sense that bureaucratic infighting is at work, which it is. But the bureaucratic infighting that goes on at the UN is very different, uh, I would say for a number of reasons. The first one, you know, some some I, I often hear when, when I do book talks, um, some people say, oh, it's the same as the foreign ministry, minister of defense kind of rivalry. It's actually very different for, for a number of reasons. The first is that, In the case of a foreign ministry or minister of defense, both of them are um, answerable to one person, that's the prime minister or the president, depending on the system. So you do have a top man or woman that is able to somehow do something about these infighting. Ultimately, that's also the political leader. And so these two bureaucracies, they might not be happy, but they will have to find a compromise. In the case of the united nations that's very different um i don't think i break anybody's um, uh, heart by saying that the appointments of under secretaries general of the u.n is a very political process in fact uh, the major powers have uh, really occupied most of those positions and so the Secretary General, if you just imagine the Secretary General as a Prime Minister, you have this guy so far, a guy who really has a cabinet made up of members that he has not appointed. He might have agreed to it, but he has not appointed and is not in a position to appoint his or her own cabinet. Sometimes, certainly in the case of Butusgali, Ghali, he did not even trust his own ministers. So what kind of expectations do you have for a political leader who cannot even trust the people that he works with? In the case of Butchus Ghali, this became paranoia. Um, Actually, in the case of Butchus Ghali, this became personal hostility, especially towards Kofi Annan. Again, different people have different opinions, um, but... I can guarantee that Butcher's Ghali saw Kofi Annan as a threat, and the diaries of Golding are very, very clear about the very, very negative consequences of that. But even you know, if you leave the Butcher's Ghali situation aside, and, and you look at the role of the Secretary General, this is really an impossible role. Um, not only because of the constraints in the formation of his cabinet, but also remember that even to this day, many member states actually deny any political role for the Secretary General. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why the Department of Political Affairs has been really never been considered important, because the assumption is, if the Secretary General doesn't have a political role, why do we even bother to look at the Department of Political Affairs? And I think... What I try to do in my book is to show that, certainly in the case of Rwanda, to be seen whether this is also the case in other operations, which is what I'm working at the moment, but certainly in the case of Rwanda, that kind of rivalry, yes, it was bureaucratic, it it showed itself in bureaucratic form, but there were power political reasons, more specifically There was a a divide between a Secretary General that was trying to really assert his authority and member states, especially the United States, that did not want him to assert his authority. So this, I hope, has just suggested that UN bureaucracy is far more interesting than is usually given credit for. So
0: we're we're moving along in time, so I'd like to jump... um, Jump to the period of the genocide itself, and ask you to say something about um, how Butrus Butrus Gali interacted with the Security Council, and um, and say something about why the Security Council um, decided to withdraw Unamir and then change its mind. And, and to preface that, I want to say that you're you're able in your book to take advantage of the the minutes from the and I'm, I'm forgetting the technical word. I think of them as private sessions, but that's not the right phrase. Um, but the secret, uh, the, the private consultations of the Security Council that were not held publicly. So could you say a little bit about, about those issues, please?
1: Sure. Um, so two things here you're asking. First of all, the, uh, you're asking me about the relationship between Butos or the interactions, in fact, between Butos and the Security Council. These were virtually non-existent. Uh, for a number of reasons. The first one is that Butuz absolutely hated the Security Council, especially the, um, the, person, uh, the permanent uh, members of the Security Council, the uh, um, representatives of member states or ambassadors. He had a dislike for most of them. He thought it was beneath him to actually go and attend the Security Council sessions. This is somebody that was used to deal directly with presidents and prime ministers. So he's on record uh, on a number of diaries entries saying, I do not intend to waste my time with low-ranking bureaucrats, as he calls the the ambassadors of member states on the Security Council. So we are talking about somebody that... um, tries to spend as little time as possible in the Security Council. This was a departure, for example, from Paris Keyer, who was the previous Secretary General. And um, this has a number of implications. He appointed um, a special representative to the Security Council precisely because he did not want to deal with it. And so this person was really supposed to be the spokesperson of the Secretary General on the Council. This is important because as you, as the the crisis of Rwanda and others, because you have to remember that in 1994 and 1995, we have several crises, not only Rwanda, but also Bosnia in uh, February 1994, Sarajevo, uh, the market shelling happens. Then you have in May 1994, again, you have Bosnia in July, There is Haiti. So, Rwanda is only one part of the picture, and I focus on that. um, But there are other kind of components of this puzzle. In all of this, Butchus Ghali tries to avoid actually going to the Security Council and sends a representative. And he tells the representative, um, try to get away with as little as you can tell them as possible. Just don't give information. Um, to the Security Council members, we really don't want to do that. I will handle this at the level of head of state and government uh, who will then tell the ambassadors or the bureaucrats, as he calls them, what to do. So you really have, and this is interesting and goes back to the personality of Butuz that I was mentioning, this is somebody that... Um, has a very disdainful attitude towards Security Council ambassadors, especially, and uh, perhaps here we get into a a different uh, kind of uh, relationship, especially towards Madeleine Albright um, in the U.S. ambassador. He absolutely hated uh, Madeleine Albright for a number of reasons. Different explanations were given. I was even told that there was a gender component, that he was really talking down uh, talking her down because she was a woman. She, he, in fact, is on record saying that she really didn't um, didn't understand what was going on. He even calls her half bright. So we we are talking about an attitude in a personal relationship. So this is if you if you recall what we said with Bubu and the on the ground, the personal relationship that from the beginning goes very wrong. And that then leads to a number of unintended consequences. And by the way, the most significant of these unintended consequences is that uh, Albright uh, basically convinces Clinton to veto Butcher's galley for a new term. And so makes him the only secretary general who is denied a second term in office on a 14 to 1 vote on the Security Council. So. The the attitude of Butchus Ghali towards the Security Council is really, you know, you guys handle it. I don't want, I really don't want to handle Security Council. I'm going to handle the presidents and the prime ministers. As the crisis of Rwanda intensifies, and by the way, Golding was traveling with the Secretary-General at the time of the genocide, and so he records his reactions there. It becomes increasingly difficult to maintain that stance because of media pressure and So this is actually very important because media pressure is usually dismissed, including in international relations, as irrelevant. You have this idea if member states or the Secretary General want to do something, they do it. They really don't care about the media. In the case of Rwanda, that was absolutely not the case the media pressure felt was felt very strongly both by the Secretary-General and by member states and partly also explained what you asked me, which is why did the Secretary-General decide, so, sorry, the Security Council decide to reduce, you name it, or really to close it down almost and then reverse the decision. Most of that from the secret um, minutes of the Security Council on Rwanda uh, that comes from, by the way, the Linda Melbourne Archive, which is publicly available in, um, both in Rwanda and in the UK. That, if you read those minutes, you will... The, I, I think what, what comes out very, very clearly is that uh, ambassadors or permanent representatives, as you want to call them, were very afraid, and they were afraid of the media. The minutes talk about well, actually, we're taken in the secret um or informal consultation room. I think you know, and I'm sure your listeners know that really nothing is decided in the public or um, horseshoe table kind of room, the famous very telegenic room of the Security Council, that is just for sure. What really matters in terms of decision goes on in a very small room, consultation room next door. It's very small, but most importantly, doesn't have any journalists. So that is where the 15 permanent representatives are outside of the public layer. And that is also where discussions, arguments uh, come up. And the minutes were taken in that room and show very, very clearly that the one factor that drove the Security Council was the fear of the media. Somehow the media was not present in the room, but the the presence of the media was felt. Somehow public opinion, they were very afraid of it. Uh, And so was Buccio Ghali, and that also explains his uh, U-turn on a number of fronts. So what you have in terms of the crisis from the 6th of April when the genocide starts up until really the end of May, you have a situation of incredible confusion. Again, conventional wisdom wants the United States ambassador to be adamantly opposed to an operation. That is not the case. might have been the reality, but certainly did not come up in the minutes, in the secret uh, notes. And Albright was actually fairly open-minded. She even managed to change instructions from Washington. Uh, Washington did want, the State Department at that time, did want a complete withdrawal of UNAMIR, which Albright managed to change. So what I find very interesting in those minutes is um, the drive towards consensus. So somehow we have this image of the veto, As the most important factor, perhaps behind the the United Nations, especially Security Council, the ability to veto, and we, certainly my students, have this idea, including in simulations that we, we have, that somehow the big powers can exercise the veto at will. And yes, they can, technically, but it's very costly in terms of reputation. And reputations matter, especially because the veto might then be used against you on the next issue, which would be in half an hour's time. So the United States, in the case of Rwanda, certainly the State Department wanted, and in fact the Pentagon wanted Unamir out completely. Albright saw this was untenable. She would have never reached consensus, and so really uh, went for a compromise, which was a reduction of uh, Unamir. and that was the point where such a different um, positions. You had France, who was very supportive of you name it, for reasons that are not uh, necessarily noble, um, given the connections of France to the Hutus. Um, but you have France that is very, very supportive, certainly doesn't want to withdraw. You have the United States, in theory, wants to withdraw. And then you have the elected members or smaller countries that definitely don't want to withdraw. Somehow everybody then agrees to a reduction, a drastic reduction. And then after two weeks, everybody agrees on our strengthening. And the explanation that I've given in my book is the very strong pressure towards consensus that existed at that time and, believe it or not, existed even to this day, on the Security Council. This is something I also could see when I was working at the UN. The idea that somehow the the big powers, including perhaps even especially the United States, can do whatever they want, can veto here and there, is absolutely misguided and does not really take into account uh, the reality. The reality is that um, every country needs friends, even the United States under Trump, and they will be dying to get friends. And the way that you get friends is not by vetoing here and there and here and there. It is by compromising. And Rwanda was a product of that compromise. You can reverse the logic and ask yourself, why would countries like um you know, the, the smaller countries, uh, New Zealand and others who were so supportive of you name it, Why would they ever agree to such a drastic reduction? The answer is the same. Pressure to compromise. Um, if you are a very small country on the Security Council, you desperately need friends. And the way that you get friendship is by compromising. It, it, it sounds great to say that countries should follow ideals and in the case of Rwanda we have seen what happens so we have unfortunately the benefit of hindsight and so it would be great to you know look back and see oh why didn't you know these countries stand up for Rwanda that's not the way the Security Council works and perhaps that's not the way international relations work I would add unfortunately
0: Oh, uh, that's fascinating. Um, and I wish we had more time to talk about it. We don't. We're about out of time. Um, I, I wanted to give you a chance um, to, to maybe end the substantive part of this about your book by, by asking you, to, are, what lessons do you think the UN or we should learn about the way the UN works from your study.
1: The one lesson I would say, whenever you hear the word United Nations, it means nothing. You have to ask yourself, what part of the United Nations are you referring to? And I say that because the, UN, the, the expression the United Nations... By the way, very controversial from a historical point of view. You know that the United Nations were really the Allied powers uh, after the Second World War. So even that expression is controversial. But whenever you say United Nations, you're really not saying anything unless you point out what is it that you are meaning by the United Nations. Are you talking about member states? Because if you're talking about member states, you're talking about 193 very different states the United Nations is not, has never been a democratic institution. It uh, is made up of very different, under very different states. You have democracies, you have uh, dictatorships, you have all sorts of things. So, if you are blaming the United Nations and you mean those hundred ninety-three states, who are you exactly blaming? I don't have the answer for that, but I think is a is a question that we need to ask ourselves. If By United Nations, you are referring to the secretariat, so to the bureaucracy. Which part of the bureaucracy are you referring to? Because my book, if there is one thing that it shows, is that even the UN bureaucracy, which is, I think, mistakenly seen as a monolith, is anything but a monolith. And so if you're blaming a certain department of the United Nations, maybe you should also be aware of who supports that department which state has an interest in that department who is the under secretary general of that department critically what is the nationality of that person if you are blaming if you are referring to the united nations as and that's often the case as a sum of the secretary general the UN bureaucracy and member states, and you are blaming the United Nations for things like the genocide in Rwanda, you are really not blaming anybody because you are blaming everybody. And that, by the way, is a sin that is committed first and foremost by the Secretary, uh, by the Secretariat. Uh, lessons learned report were basically, you know. Blame falls on the United Nations system. I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean anything. If you, you know, you really need to give me the names. I want to know which department you're referring to. I want to know, and this is not easy to understand, what are the political supporters of that department? Which states support that department? Are there powerful states? And how do they exercise that control? So to me, the United Nations is a very I told you, I started this, this interview by telling you that I have a flag of the United Nations. So even I'm perhaps, you know, uh, I have that problem myself. In my view, the flag represents an ideal. So that's the flag I have in my office. is about the UN Charter and the values of the UN Charter. But I hope that one of the lessons of my book is whenever you hear or you mention the United Nations, please be more specific and tell us which part of the UN are you referring to, especially as I do in my book, if you are blaming certain uh, departments or certain parts, because otherwise it's very unfair and is also completely useless. Because by blaming everybody, you are not blaming anybody.
0: Well, there's lots more in this book that we didn't get a chance to talk about, and I really encourage you, if you're listening, to to go out and and, and get the book and look at it. It's got fascinating discussions about the intelligence in the UN. It's got a a lengthy section about the. Um, lessons learned from this crisis and how, uh, later secretary generals tried to implement those lessons. It's in particular got a fascinating discussion about the ambiguities involved in peacemaking and peacekeeping and peace building. Um, and we don't have time to talk about those now, but I do want to want to say those were eye opening for me. And I, I, highly recommend that, that you go out and, and, and read them yourself. Uh, but Herman, I always enter these interviews with the same way, um, with two questions. Um, one of which, um, we're recording this, let's see, on my computer, it says it's the 3rd of January. Uh, that means for many academics anyway, they're still, at least for a moment, on break. And so there's still a chance that this weekend I can sit down in my living room with a book or a movie and read something that's not written in a blue book by a student. So what, what should I read this weekend? What, what, is, what one or two books did you read while you were writing this um, that meant something to you that, that, that you think I and our listeners should read?
1: So um, I would say, I, I would actually be leaning towards a movie rather than. Uh, oh, good. Because, uh-huh. uh, I think we. Well, that'll make happy. my family happy. Yeah, I'm not sure about that actually, but um, I don't think it would make you happy either. But that would be actually uh, Anna Arendt, which is a movie um, that came out uh, a while ago. And that remained a constant in my kind of writing process of the book for for reasons that I can very, very briefly summarize. It has to do with that kind of very controversial idea of the banality of evil um, that I'm sure you you and uh, your listeners are familiar to. But it kind of struck a chord with me when I was uh, working on the book because of... um, The expression that I refer to in a a very provocative way is the bureaucracies of death. And I'm not in in any way suggesting that the United Nations Secretariat or the two departments that I'm dealing with were bureaucracies of death uh, in Rwanda in 1994, not even for a second, and I think we, we have clarified that. But I'm very concerned about the power of bureaucracies to um, somehow assume a decision-making power um, that gets out of control or perhaps that does exactly what um, some people, especially the political leaders, want the bureaucracy to do. So I strongly recommend this movie, um, Anna Arendt, and of course also I would ask perhaps to refresh your memory on the Eichmann in uh, Jerusalem book because I cannot think of another Kind of warning about the power of bureaucracy, um, and also the this idea that you know it's very subtle, it's um, it's very difficult to spot, but it's very efficient. And uh, in the case of the Nazis, for example, bureaucracy was absolutely critical to to do what they have done. Again, you do have a political will and a political leader and a political power. The bureaucracy in itself did not commit, of course, the Holocaust. But the role that it played, I find it uh, quite concerning. And I certainly wouldn't want any similar role to be played by international organizations, bureaucracies. I,
0: I have a movie to find. Thank you. Um, and then we always end with this question. Um, what are you working on now?
1: So. Although my, the book that I just published, you might have realized, is not exactly Harry Potter, either in terms of um, easy of read. It's not an easy reading, and uh, certainly from a financial point of view, it's not, uh, it's not as rewarding as, as Harry Potter. So I'm actually working on my next project is really a zooming out um, from the Rwanda operation to uh, the larger issue of the relationship between peacekeeping and building. And more specifically, the relationship, again, between concepts such as peacekeeping and peacebuilding and uh, parts of the UN bureaucracy. I'm I'm very interested to try to understand whether Rwanda was exceptional in terms of the dysfunctions and pathologies that took place, or whether it was actually part of a bigger picture um, and I suspect it is the latter, because whenever you look at the bureaucracy from New York, one of the things that I realized when I was working there is we were dealing with crisis on an hourly basis. Um, And perhaps one of the dangers of working in such a high pressure environment is you lose a sense of perspective. How many days can you go to work and actually deal with ethnic cleansing or genocide or Murders and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. and I want to try to understand whether the pathologies that I've seen in Rwanda were replicated um, at the UN bureaucracy level in other operations, and I also want to understand what kind of relationship did the structures that were set up in uh, these bureaucracies. What kind of relation did they have with the concepts of peacekeeping and peacebuilding? So the kind of structures versus process uh, issue that I mentioned. So really, is a zooming out from Rwanda to looking at larger at the larger picture of peacekeeping and peacebuilding in the 90s and beyond.
0: Well, that sounds like a great topic. I hope when you're done that you'll be willing to come back on the show and chat about it with us. Uh, but I want to thank you again for your time. It's been a wonderful interview, uh, and I appreciate it very much. And I wish you the best of Uh, what I assume is a break until you go back to Bangladesh.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. All
0: right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Herman Sultan about his book, Dangerous Diplomacy, Bureaucracy, Power Politics, and the Role of the UN Secretariat in Rwanda, published by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. We'll continue the Rwanda series shortly, but next time we'll take a break to talk with Sam Totten about his new book, Sudan's Nuba Mountains People Under Siege. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great new year.